0: Augustine had a lust problem. If you read his story, you'll find it has such a modern ring to it, for he was a man who struggled with his passions and dealt with great relational brokenness. In his famous Confessions, he describes himself at a time in his life when he was aware of his sin, aware of its badness, and yet also aware of his unwillingness to let it go. His prayer was, like ours often are, Lord, give me purity, but not yet. Kill sin, or sin will be killing you, as the saying goes. But there are times when we simply don't want to do it. It could be that we don't really believe that sin actually wars against our souls. The apostles would tell you otherwise. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes in verses 12 through 13, these words. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Many religions in the world talk about how one must fight against the evils Out there, but rarely about the evil within. This is precisely what Paul the Apostle says we must do if we are to follow Christ and become who God has declared us to be. He's already told us that when we believed, we were united with Jesus Christ and we have His Spirit dwelling in us. We are given a new heart, we're given new desires, we're given new power. To be at home with Jesus, as we just learned, is to be at odds with whatever is against him. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, we not only have new power, but as Paul says here, we have new obligations. And understanding this is key to overcoming temptation. So I want us to understand the gist of what Paul wrote and think through all of its very practical implications. In one of our previous sessions, we learned that every temptation we face becomes an opportunity to flex our spiritual muscles, which causes us to grow over time. And in these final two sessions, I want us to think about the ways in which we can flex our spiritual muscles in the face of temptation, namely two, by killing sin and cultivating virtue. I have talked and prayed with countless men and women in my church who feel as though they simply have no choice when it comes to sin. We are trained by our fallen nature to think this way and it keeps us stuck in old patterns. And I love to read them what Paul writes here in Romans that though sin is possible, it is no longer inevitable. Being born again means you are no longer obliged to the demands of the sinful nature. You are on your way to becoming glorious in God. His power and his presence has given you everything necessary to get there. In the meantime, however, there are things we must do as evidences of this power working in us. You have a new obligation To do what? He says, to put to death the deeds of the body, or as the older translations say, mortify the flesh. I must admit that I love that word, mortify. The way that we use the word today doesn't quite carry the weight that it did back in the older days. Like if you show up to a party and you're wearing the same outfit, you will probably be mortified, especially in Los Angeles. (laughs) In the 17th century, however, it was a radical word. In fact, John Owen, the Puritan writer, used it in the title of his book, The Mortification of Sin. To mortify sin means to kill it. There is a war in the Christian life, but it's not with other people and it's not with other nations. It is a war with the sinful desires in our own selves. The more radical we are with sin, the more free we become. And I don't want this to remain theoretical. I want us to think very practically and simply about what it means to kill sin. So let me frame it in five steps. Number one, know your enemy. What exactly are we supposed to kill? And what did Paul mean when he said, put to death the deeds of the body? He is referring to all actions that are influenced by the life of sin. The body, the deeds that we do, when influenced by sin, they actually become instruments of sin. Each outward sin has an inward origin. Jesus said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the heart. So this desire, it grabs a hold of the body and says, oh, this will work. I'll use that. So Paul is saying we must kill it off at the source. We need to spot it within our own hearts. Too many Christians think that just so long as they don't live in overtly sinful environments, they could be relatively sin-free. But as we've learned, this is a lie. We saw in the wilderness temptation of Jesus that he was tempted by Satan, not, necess- not necessarily with bad things, but with bad motivations. And I cannot stress how important this is. You can do all kinds of good deeds, but with sinful desires. Depending on your Christian background, you might find this somewhat unnecessary, all this focus on on evil desires. I hear it often from people in my own church. The sinful nature doesn't reign over us anymore. So why are we still talking about it? Here's why. Though sin may not preside over us, it still resides within us. And if you are unaware of this, then you may unknowingly come under its control. Though we are on our way to glory, we must be aware of indwelling sin, for we will not be rid of it until we are resurrected. So, number one, know your enemy. Number two, know your enemy's strategies. Though every person has a sin nature, it's not always expressed in the same ways. We all have different proclivities. We all have different inclinations. Learning the art of killing sin is recognizing what you and I are prone to. And it may look different for everybody. What tempts my wife is a little bit different than what tempts me, but we're all wrestling with the sinful nature. So what you need to do is recognize your own inclinations. As we saw in the wilderness temptation of Jesus, Satan will come with tailor-made temptations seeking to capitalize on your areas of weakness. It is crucial to know your enemy's tactics. I would encourage you to confess these with close friends. Be honest about it. Open up. Take off the mask. Say, these are my areas of weakness. And most importantly, confess them before God himself. It's a part of winning the war. But it doesn't stop there. We not only need to know the enemy's strategies. Thirdly, aim well. You have heard the phrase a thousand times in church, just give it to God. Hey, what are you doing? There's sin. Oh, just giving it to God. And it's often said in relation to sin. Now, part of this is true. We need to give it to God in the sense that we need forgiveness and we need strength to overcome. But here from Paul, we learn that God also gives us a responsibility. You and I need to make choices. We're not just to sit there and wait passively because we've been given the power of the spirit and we've been given the instruction of God's word to put sin to death. It's not just a theory. It's something that you and I need to do. I've talked with many people who feel stuck in their sin and they usually say to me, I don't know what to do. I've received advice and I've received counsel from many others, but nothing ever changes. I respond to them with a question. I say, Have you made choices based on their counsel? I understand that you've heard a lot of good advice, and there may be very godly men and women in your life, but have you made choices on their counsel? Is their counsel biblical? Have you actually decided for yourself to deal with sin? See, here's the truth that I learned early on in the Christian life no one else can kill my sin, it's my responsibility. No one else can kill your sin. It is your responsibility. My wife cannot mortify the sin in my heart. My children cannot do it for me. My church can't do it for me. My friends cannot do it for me. It is the Holy Spirit in me that enables me to put sin to death. If you don't realize this, then you will become frustrated, you will become bitter, and you will start blaming others, perhaps even blaming the church when all the while the person you have become is shaped by your own unwillingness to deal with sin. When Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, he was making an intentional overstatement in order to get a point across and it certainly does the job. To kill sin is to take away its strength. It's to cut off the supply. For example, there are certain influences that subtly feed your own sinful inclinations. Take for example, if if you struggle with an over-desire for romance, then you've gotta be careful what you watch and what you read. If you struggle with, with substances, you need to be very careful. You may even need to set up boundaries so that you don't give in to those substances. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not blaming the substances or those books or those films as the problem, but it's what our own sinful inclinations want to do with them. And oftentimes we're allowing into our lives a diet of things that are unhealthy for our souls and they actually influence our sinful inclinations. This means that we come to God and humbly say, Lord, you know my inclinations. You know my weaknesses. You know the source. You know that they come right from my heart. You know I'm inclined to do this thing. You can fill in the blank. You know I'm inclined to do that thing. I recognize this and I ask for your help in choosing what is helpful and healthy for my life. That is getting to the supply line. You kill the fruit of sin by killing the root of sin. We must do this. And fourthly, we must make the first move. Sin can have this hypnotizing effect upon us. John Owen captures it well when he tells us that sin will, quote, darken the mind, extinguish convictions, dethrone reason, interrupt the power and influence of any considerations that may be brought to hamper it and break through all into a flame. The point is, the longer you wait, the more ground you you lose. Do not make peace with your sin. And yet it is very easy to do. We may very well be aware of a particular sin and we understand it's bad and that it must go. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, through the word, and perhaps even other Christians in community have pointed it out and you are convicted and yet you let it live. You may like I have in times past. You may even pray about it like this. Dear God, I want to obey you in all areas of my life, but please just let this little sin live. When you read the story of the kings in the Old Testament, you might be tempted to write them off, assuming that we are nothing like them. And yet our requests of God are often very similar. You see, many of those kings fell into wickedness because they did not act on the conviction that God brought upon them. Scripture never tells us they weren't convicted of sin. We are told that they didn't act upon them. They didn't act upon those convictions. The more they resisted, the farther they moved from God and thus they became known as wicked. We must be the first to make the move against sin. Imagine for a moment being merciful to a disease in your body. That's ridiculous, right? You don't want to be merciful to something that's actually killing your physical body. But that is how it sounds to God when we ask him to allow our sin to continue. We must be careful that when asking God for mercy, that we're not really asking for God's tolerance. To quote John Owen once more, He said, quote, do you think that you may be at liberty to that which grieves him? Make no mistake, sin is never a friend. The Apostle Peter tells us that fleshly passions actually war against our souls. War has already been declared. You must move first. And fifthly, keep at it. I have known and observed ministers for many years now who I never would have suspected as candidates for scandal or moral failure. And yet it happens more than I would like to admit. In my city, the word evangelical has become synonymous with scandal. It's sad, but this does not have to be the case for you. It does not have to be the case for me. We must be vigilant. We must be watchful and mindful that our enemy, the devil, is like a lion seeking someone to devour. And personally, I don't want to give him the pleasure. The way down always begins with prayerlessness and self sufficiency. These subtle ways in which we begin to give in to temptation and give in to sin often stems from us being sub-Christian or super-Christian or semi-Christian, essentially becoming self-sufficient, and God is optional. My biggest concern for the people in my church is not necessarily for those who are trying to deal with their sin. It's for those who don't recognize a need to deal with sin at all. Self-sufficiency and prayerlessness Reveal a loss of intimacy with God and a hardness of heart slowly develops. That is what makes you comfortable with sin. Owen describes it like this quote, You that were tender and used to melt under the word, under afflictions, will grow, as some have spoken, sermon proof. Owen is talking about our ability to rally all of our inner lawyers to come to our defense and pretend that what the preacher said on Sunday and what we read in our Bibles and what our friends discuss in our small groups and community groups doesn't really apply to us. We don't need to deal with it. That's for somebody else. But hopefully, like Peter the Apostle did on the night he betrayed his Lord and friend, hopefully we melt at the glance of Jesus that we humble ourselves under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, conviction and discipline from God are like spiritual smelling salts that Christ uses to wake us up. We need to deal radically with our sin, but we need to do so knowing that we are built on a firm foundation. We are secure in our salvation. The only solution for our sins and the only power to fight them in daily life comes from Jesus Christ himself. There is no death to sin without the death of Christ. He makes the tree good and produces the fruit through us. This, the Bible calls the doctrine of justification. It's what makes Christianity so gloriously different than all other religions. There is new life. There is new power. There is new desires. There are new abilities. Paul says, mortify sin by the Holy Spirit. He's referring to this new and true power source that lies within us. That's what enables us to kill sin. That means then that you are not on your own. And though we need to hear warnings, we don't need to live in fear when it comes to temptation. The responsibility to kill sin doesn't mean that we're not secure in our salvation. It's actually the reverse. The responsibility to kill sin is the fruit of our salvation. And this is what we need to hear as we face daily temptation. So on the one hand, Killing sin is a necessity. It's not an option for heavy users in the Christian faith. It is for everyone who names the name of Jesus. It's the evidence that we are born again and that we are being changed by Jesus. But on the other hand, we must clearly state that killing sin is the result of our justification, not the cause of our justification. Jesus never tells us to get our act together on our own and then come to him when we have done so. That is not the message of the gospel. Rather, through faith in him, we are made right before God. We receive this new power for a new life on our way to glory. That which condemned me, that which drugged me to death, that which brought me into condemnation rules over me no more. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will be removed. This means that facing temptation and killing sin can actually be done with joy. Is that weird? No. It's the kind of joy you have when you're tending a garden, removing the weeds that kill in order for the fruit and the vegetables to thrive. Our life is like a garden and the divine gardener has come into our lives to bring forth incredible fruit. And this means killing off that which kills it. Each time we put sin to death, we do so in pursuit of life. Overcoming temptation is not the ultimate goal. It is a necessary part of the journey on our way to the goal, which is becoming more like Christ.